It's good to worship with you guys today. You sound great. You don't sound like you missed an hour of sleep. You sound like you're the smart Christians that slept in and came to second service and brought your singing with you. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Good. So today we're starting a brand new series on repentance. So that'll calm the room down a little. And before we get into that, I just want to remind us that we spent the last few weeks talking about rekindled, and specifically rekindled was about our marriages, but it was also principles for relationships all across the board. And so uh, last week, wrapped up that series, Todd preached a lights out sermon about the Holy Spirit, and you guys weren't here for first service, so you don't know the power was out in first service. I'll say it again. Todd preached a lights out sermon about the Holy Spirit. Pity laughs. Jenna told me not to do that, but you know. And the Holy Spirit fanning the flames in our marriages means, uh, like Todd said a week ago, there's going to be some moments where the Spirit convicts us. Right near the end of his message, he said that sometimes us men in the marriages are going to hit a point where we realize that we've been selfish about some things, and we're going to hear the Holy Spirit say to us, and how did you say it? Stop it, right? And so there's moments that we get convicted by the Spirit. He moves like we asked for, but maybe it's not what we had hoped to hear. And over the next few weeks, we want to talk a little bit about what do we do when the Spirit convicts us. So that's where we're going. And I just want to also remind you that with our Rekindled series... Our home point team had put out some really great resources. We had date night cards. Uh, we had some fun matches that were in there. We had uh, some CDs with uh, podcasts and lessons on them. And all of that is still available right here at the table in the back and in our home point center. So our emphasis on rekindling relationships isn't over. We're hoping that those resources are useful to you over the coming months. As we build towards Easter, we're rekindling relationships and going through repentance. We've got a few things here coming together. Also, that team had sent out a survey, a home point survey. If you would, if you didn't have the chance yet, and that's still sitting in your inbox, would you fill that out today? It's our last chance to do it. They'll be compiling the numbers this week, and it'll help our home point team know a little bit more about which of the resources are most important to you and what kind of things they can do in a future series when we do these home point series together as a team. So let's turn our minds and our hearts towards repentance a season of changing minds. We'll do this for the next three weeks. And today as we get started, we want to look at this question. When is it time to repent? When does the Holy Spirit convict us that it's time to repent? And then after we look at when is it time to repent, we're going to look at what does repentance mean? And Christians, I want you to think about this a minute. Repentance is not a word that people use in society very often. Webster's right now, their online dictionary has these awesome tools. They say that repentance is in the lower 50% of all words used in the English language. So I'm telling you, it's a church word. People don't just walk around at work going, oh, you know, I, had, I repented of this yesterday. You know, they just don't talk that way. So we're talking, maybe you don't know what repentance means. Or maybe we all think it means something different. So when is it time to repent and what does repentance mean? And then we're going to look at uh, what does God hope... Pr- Repentance will produce in you. Okay, what does God want repentance to produce in your life? So let's start with, when is it time to repent? There was a famous quote that was made by Martin Luther about 500 years ago. 
when he nailed the 95 theses, uh, which are like propositions, there's another word we don't use much, theses, statements or propositions, he took this list and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany, and it was a bunch of things that he thought needed to be looked at again in the church, and the first of those statements was this right here. Our Lord and Master, Jesus, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me say it again. This is Luther. This is one of the sentences or statements that lit the fires of the Reformation in Europe 500 years ago, last uh, October 31st. He said, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. So when Martin Luther talked about when is repentance, he thought of it as a season. The entire season of the life of a Christian. Now this is one of the moments where it might be really hard if you think repentance means a certain thing. This doesn't sound like good news. A lot of people think that repentance means that there is a point in time when I feel crushed by what I've done. And I go through these moments, and here's the thing, even if you're not a Christian, everyone does this. They might not call it repentance, but everybody in the world has these moments where they've done something wrong and they're convicted that they've done something wrong, they've hurt somebody, and they go, oh, you know, I can't believe that I did that again. I promised myself I would never do that again. I've got to really get it right this time. Uh, I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be tougher. And I'm not going to come back here again, right? And they do this thing where it's just like internal pressure. You ever felt like that a little bit? Guilt comes hammering down. If that's what you think repentance means, then a lifetime of having those moments over and over and over would not be good news, would it? It would be crushing. It would be an unbearable weight. Christians would be walking around with ulcers all the time. Every Christian in the world would be locked up in a mental home. You can't live with that kind of crushing weight all of the time. And so clearly, Martin Luther was thinking of repentance as being a little different than that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Why does he think about life as a season of repentance? All throughout the history of Christianity, and even before there was Christians, when the Jews were following God and worshiping him in the world, there have been seasons in which people made a concerted effort to come back to God. There have been times that people set aside to look inside and to ask, what would God have us do now? And maybe as Church of Christ Christians, sometimes we're a little bit cautious about the seasons because we've seen some abuses that took place in the history of Christianity. Like maybe we're familiar with some of the holiday traditions from the Roman Catholic Church. And we've seen the way that they've invented something like Lent, and then they force it on everybody to where everybody in the system has to repent during the season called Lent. And not only do you have to repent during this season, but there's going to be certain mandatory food restrictions that everybody has to do. Did you know that for Catholics, that on Fridays during the Lenten season, you're not allowed to eat meat? There's one good reason to be Protestant. <laughs> I grew up in a heavy Catholic, <clears throat> saturated Catholic area in Pennsylvania. And not a lot of people were practicing Catholics in my school, at my high school. But our high school cafeteria only served fish on Fridays because of the Lenten rules. So a lot of people just had bad feelings about it. You know, like, it's just that bogus religious oppression. But I want you to ask yourselves whether it's not appropriate for you and for me that sometimes we have a heartfelt season of repentance. Not talking about something that you force on everybody all at once, but if you in your heart decided that between you and God, you were going to have some time where you spent looking inwards 
and to you, the Lent season before Easter or any season at all was a time where you were going to do some focused scripture reading or praying, and you were going to purposefully ask God questions like, what do you have for my life? What's in my life that doesn't match? Maybe a season of repentance is right for you if it's heartfelt and not this legalistic thing. Here's a couple other positive examples. Even the churches in America have thrived in part because of seasons of repentance, communal seasons of repentance. There was a time period in the, ni- in the 19th century, the early 1800s in America, when there was a, a season called the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening. There was a First Great Awakening that took place before we were the United States of America, when we were colonies. And then there was a Second Great Awakening that mostly had moved more south and more west and kind of covered part of the area that we live in now, and Tennessee and Kentucky and Ohio and areas like that. And in the middle of the Second Great Awakening, there were even little uh, isolated pockets of seasons of repentance, like revivals and gospel meetings and these big tent events where people would come together and they'd hear preaching for not just a few hours, but for days on end. And one of them was called the Cane Ridge Revival. It's kind of important to Churches of Christ, the tradition that we are a part of, because Barton Stone, who was an early preacher in the movement that became the Churches of Christ in the 1800s in America, went to the Cane Ridge Revival, and he witnessed over a period of days all of these people pouring their hearts out before God, bearing their souls before God, preaching and singing and just praying over each other, and it was a huge moment of revival. And partially out of that movement, the churches of Christ came into being in this country. And also, the Bible Belt tradition that you are so blessed by, where we've got Christian bookstores on half the corners, and you've got so many resources, and it's one of the places left in the country where it's still kind of publicly okay to be Christian, and you don't get quite as much You hate for that. This Bible Belt region that we live in, most of that's because of a season of repentance during the Second Great Awakening. Here's one last one. And this is the scripture we're going to start with today from Luke chapter 3. There was a period in Israel's history, right before Jesus began preaching, when John, Jesus' cousin, who was also known as John the Baptist, and he wasn't a Baptist by denomination, although he was the only true first Baptist, John started a season of repentance for the people of Israel. And here in Luke 3, we read a little bit about how this happened. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idaria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Let's pause here for a second and say a couple things. First of all, these are names that may mean nothing to you. And that's okay. What Luke is doing is he is centering this revival movement that he's about to tell you about in an actual historical period of time. This isn't just a legend of something that had happened, but it was an actual historic period in which the people really needed a season of repentance. Because these rulers, even though you may not know their names, these guys were bad news. Tiberius Caesar was one of the harsh emperors who made life very hard on outlying kingdoms with their own religions. And he made life hard on the Jews. And these other guys that you see are relatives of Herod the Great, who was called King of the Jews, and who was a tyrant and a puppet king. And these are also puppet kings 
that the people of Israel didn't want to be ruling. They didn't vote for them. They didn't get a choice about them. Instead, these guys became kings because they had the most money and because they were the most powerful. And they used their power and their money to oppress people. So these guys are a joke, but a really, really bad one. And this is a season that the people really needed a time of repentance. The second thing I want you to see from this verse is that where I went to college at Harding University, we only had a president. But as you can see, Abilene had a full tetrarch. And I think we ought to upgrade and get one of those. (laughs) Moving on. This is also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And this is what John does to launch a season of repentance. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It ought to sound a little bit familiar to those of us who have enjoyed growing up in the churches of Christ. Why does John do this? Why does he go to the Jordan? Why does he preach baptism? Why repentance? Why forgiveness? You see, John is also locating this season of repentance in other historical events that came before him. So Luke has anchored him, and he will anchor us in the past from Israel. When the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt by God, do you remember the plagues that he he did on Egypt and all the miraculous signs, and he led them out with great power, and they were only a couple weeks away from getting to the promised land. They had a one-year stop to get the law at Mount Sinai, and then a short walk, a week or so. And they get to the promised land, and they're about ready to enter in. And God's already delivered them once through water at the Red Sea when Moses and his staff, using the power of God, caused the waters to wall up on either side. And the people of Israel walked across to safety on dry land. Maybe you remember some of these stories. But here they are at the promised land, and some of the people see that there's giants and powerful rulers and kingdoms with warriors in Canaan, and they don't want to go. And they say to God, no way. They start backing up. They start balking at the prospect of going in. And they're like, God, we'd be happy going back to Egypt. And so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When the whole generation dies out, except for Caleb and Joshua, all of the next generation come back to Canaan and now it's their chance to go into the promised land. And what does God do for them when they reach the Jordan River? He reenacts for them one of the great moments of salvation history. He causes the wall of the Jordan River to stand up like this. All the water mounts up like a wall again. And the next generation gets to cross through on dry land, even though they might not have been around for the first wall of water. And so John is thinking, we need to reconnect with our heritage. We need to reconnect with our forefathers. Just, by the way, as the prophet Malachi said he would, turn the hearts of the sons of the fathers. And so he goes back to the Jordan River where the people had entered into the promised land. And there he begins to immerse people in these waters so that they also pass through the wall of water on their way to the promised land to reconnect with their Savior. He covers them in water as God had covered them at the Jordan and as he covered them at the Red Sea. And this was something that Gentiles or outsiders or pagans did to become Jews at this time in Israel's history. So not only are they connecting with their own history, but John is even saying, we might think that people outside of our fellowship need to come in and get God, but we need to come in and get God too. 
Let's go through the same thing that anybody would come through to get God. The prophet Isaiah had said this about John years before. There will be a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. In other words, John's role was to prepare the hearts of the people to see the Lord's salvation. His role was to make it as easy as possible for them to encounter God. And in just a few weeks, we're going to have people all around our communities who for one time in the year think a little bit about Jesus Christ because it's Easter. And all they know is bunnies and eggs and stuff that has nothing to do with the gospel. But they might go to church. And the question is, have we been Johns over the three weeks leading up to Easter? Are we preparing the way, smoothing out the roads, making the highways level? Are we getting our hearts ready as the people of God to receive people so that all of us get to enter into the kingdom and into salvation together? And we're not standing in looking at them like outsiders as if, what, you guys don't know how to come to God? No, we're paving the way for them. We're making it easy for them to come to God. And so, John, fiery preacher, He preaches this to the crowds coming out to be baptized by by him. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Now this isn't any trick of the Hebrew or the Greek or anything. It's not a compliment. It's not a compliment in any language at any time at any point in history. Right? He's saying, your family is the snake family. This is like putting up the mailbox and putting on their residence, you know, the snakes. John's being tough on the people, and the reason is is because what they're saying about themselves. John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see it? For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. John tells them that they're like a family of snakes because they're claiming That their heritage, their family alone is all it takes for them to be okay with God. They're like, our family is Abraham's family. That's why we're better than the rest of the world. He goes, no, that kind of thinking puts you in the family of serpents. That kind of thinking puts you in Satan's family. You're nothing before God because of what people before you did. You're something before God because of what Jesus Christ did if you accept it through faith and walk through these waters and step into it with him into the land of salvation. Amen, church? And so, don't think that your heritage is going to save you. John isn't afraid to preach about wrath. And this is something that's very uncomfortable in our world today. You think people don't like to talk about repentance. I didn't look it up, but I bet you, Merriam-Webster's, wrath probably isn't even registered on the percentage of how much people use words. We don't like today to talk about judgment. And one of the great... American lies is that any kind of decision at all is judgmentalism. And so we've taken in our country the words that Jesus said, do not judge, for in the same way that you judge, you also will be judged. The way that you measure it will be measured to you. And we have overextended it, hyperextended it to the point where any opinion at all, especially if you're telling someone else no, means that you're being judgmental. And John's just going to cut right through that and say, no, there are some things that God says are true, and the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of things that you need to repent of. 
And so there is wrath of God. If there's not wrath of God, listen to this. If there is not wrath of God, there is no justice in the world. And I want you to think for just a moment whether you really want to live in a world in which there is no no. Or there is no punishment. Or there is no justice. Because even though it seems awfully unfair that God would set down some rules and say these are the things you can do and these are the things you can't do. If God doesn't have some wrath and a little bit of fury, and if he's not going to punish evildoers, that means that all the people who oppress other people into slavery or who beat them into submission and force them into their will because they're the stronger member of the family or who commit some kind of sexual assault, all the things we're seeing in the Me Too movement, all of those things go unpunished or undealt with and there's no justice in eternity unless God has a little bit of wrath. And so John is going to preach that God's wrath is real and that the season is now. Look at verse 9. He says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's part of the wrath, part of the sermon, but look at how he puts it, how he phrases it. Trees grow fruit in their season, don't they? There's a period of time when you know to go look for the apples. And what you're looking for when you go picking apples is you want that tree where the limbs are just about to break off because there's so many apples. I'm telling you, you want to be able to just shake the branches on that tree and you just got apples falling off all over. We want a good harvest. When you go looking for apples, you don't want to be looking up that tree for some scrawny little thing. You don't want to be looking up there going, I think that little green one might be edible, you know, if you cook it for three hours. You want a harvest at the season time. And this is the image that John uses to say, the time is now. Your life is the season. Don't wait too long until the tree is dead and there's no fruit and force God's wrath to fall on you. It doesn't have to be that way. So let's take a moment and talk about what repentance means. There's a couple words in the Bible that most often get translated as repentance. The Hebrew word is shub. Now, this is a very fun word, so everybody say shub with me. Shub. Say it again. Shub. It's kind of like shubity doo bop, right? It's fun. And shub simply means to turn or return. So, shub gets used over a thousand times in the Old Testament, and there's in English over a hundred different ways it gets translated. It's not because they don't know what it means, it's because it was so commonly used in Hebrew society that they used it for a lot of things. Maybe like we use dude. And so they would use shub, kind of like we used do. They'd use shub whenever you were returning somebody's property to them. You know, you'd use shub. You'd use shub whenever you were walking one direction down a path, and then you turned and you went the other direction down the path. That's shub. And maybe if your heart or your mind or your soul was turning towards God, the word that you would use would be shub. But you're turning towards God. So this is repentance in the Hebrew. The Greek word is metanoeo, and there's a noun that sounds like it, it's metanoia, and these two words in the Greek simply mean to change your mind or have an afterthought. And so we use the word afterthought sometimes right now, maybe at work, you've been in charge of buying something, and you tell uh, the purchaser at work, we need 1,000 units of item X, and then a few minutes later, you rush over to them right before the end of the workday, and you say, no, 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 change that, I've had an afterthought. We need 1,500s of item X. You know? It's just a way that we talk about we've reconsidered something. We've thought about it a second time. And this is the way the Greeks use the word as well. 
After you've given something a little bit more thought, sometimes you change your mind. And sometimes there's events or moments that convict you to change your mind. And so, here's an example from the Hebrew scriptures when we find the word shub, to turn. This is from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. And Joel, many years before John the Baptist was preaching to Israel that it was time for a heart change. He said, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Do you see the word right there? Return. Shoot. That's our little word. Shoot. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return. There it is again. Shub. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. And who knows? He may turn. Guess what the word is? Y'all say it with me. Shub. He may turn and relent and leave a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. This is what the prophet Joel is saying. People, it's time to turn your hearts. Not just your actions and all of that, but it's time to turn your hearts back to God. And if we could make our hearts turn towards God, who knows? Maybe God's heart would turn back towards us because this is the way that God works in repentance. The turning is never us turning alone. It's like this delicate spiritual dance in which we turn to God and he rushes into us. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And so God turns towards us. And what the prophet Joel is saying, and the prophet John would later pick up on, and Jesus would pick up on and teach, is not only that God's wrath is real, but that his grace is real as well. He says, if we would turn to God, this is God's character. He's gracious and he's compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. His grace, in other words, is real. It's as real as his wrath. It's even more potent than his wrath. Because his grace was being poured out on us long before his wrath was being poured out on us. His grace predates any need for wrath because Christ is the lamb slain from before the creation of the world. Do you know what that means? God chose grace before he had to choose wrath. It's very, very real. What does repentance mean then? We've been talking all around this. But maybe you're still living with this idea where you think repentance means, you know, I've got to just really uh, get it out of my heart. I've got to work harder. And so often we end up broken on our own performance when we try to do that. Look at what Luke 3.8 is actually saying in light of what you've learned about the words. Produce fruit that matches your change of heart. Produce fruit that is fitting for the inside turning towards God that you're experiencing. In other words, church, our repentance isn't just a mind thing. It's not a mind game. It's not just that our beliefs change. We don't simply change our mind as in change our doctrine. It's so much more than that. We change our mind in the inner mind of the heart where our allegiances lie, where our allegiance to God or to self resides. And deep inside of there, we change our mind about God. And then people come to John with these kind of questions. What does repentance mean for me? And so the crowd asks, what should we do then? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. 
and anyone who has food should do the same. Do you see how John asks the people to show fruit that matches their heart change? John's request is simple. If your heart is believing the lie that what it takes for you to be worthwhile or to cover up all your ugliness is to have a fuller closet or pantry, then for you it means it's time to give some of that away. Okay? It matches the heart change. Look at how the next two do the same. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Tax collectors were infamous for taking extra off the top, ringing the people out to fill their own pockets. He says this to some soldiers, what should we do? And he says, don't extort money. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Soldiers were known for using their power and their position to force others into the mold that they wanted them to live by. And John's like, no more power grabs for you. No more using your might and your weapons to force people to do things and to take their money from them. Be content with what you're earning. In each case, John says, where is the heart turning towards God? Where is the place on the inside that God has testified through the Holy Spirit, it's time for this to go? And let the fruit of your repentance, the outside things that show that your heart change is real, match up with the heart problem. God wants so badly to produce inside of us this fruit of repentance. And I can't tell you today what the thing is in your life that God is going to ask you to do next. I don't know which fruit he wants you to produce. So let's look at two principles as we close that God wants to be part of each and every heart change and fruit of repentance. The first one is called transparency. Guys, this just means being real about who we are. It means being honest for a change instead of hiding and covering up our problems and our sins with all kinds of excuses. Like the people that John just preached to, some were filling their closets and their pantries, some were filling their pockets, some were forcing and pushing other people around. And all of that is a disguise. It's a covering. It's a hideaway so that no one will see what I'm really like. And transparency reveals our true heart desires. Look at how David wrote this when he was repenting in the Psalms. He said, then, God, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. Do you see it? He had been covering up his iniquity. Iniquity is just another word for sin. But he says, I, not any longer. I did not cover up my iniquity now. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David pleads with the other people whose heart beats to the same rhythm as his song of repentance that we wouldn't waste time covering up our sins before God. Think about these ways that we tend to cover ourselves. We blame shift. Oh, well, you know, I couldn't really help being this way because of the things that my mom did whenever I was growing up. And then there was my dad. He was a real rotten apple in the barrel. And my uncles, you wouldn't believe them. And by the time we get to the bottom of the list, the relatives, the boss, all of that stuff, all we're doing is covering up who we really are. We try to define it away. That's not what God really meant. God wasn't actually against this. This is a technical Greek word. I know I use Greek words with you guys, but I try not to use it that way. This is a technical Greek word. It doesn't actually mean that God ever wanted you whatever, right? We medicate it. This might be our worst one. 
We medicate it. We won't deal with who we really are and what our heart's doing on the inside, so we try to medicate it away. We drink ourselves to death. We turn to pornography. We golf ourselves to death. We fill our bank accounts with money. We suck on spiritual pacifiers, those little binkies that the babies wear around their necks that don't nourish us at all. It's just a pacifying tool, and we think that by going back to it over and over again that maybe we'll somehow cover up this thing that the Spirit's telling us inside, and it doesn't work. So we criticize others. Well, if you think I'm bad, you should see what he's doing over there. We bury it in achievements in trophies, in awards, in honors, in degrees, in partnerships, all of the things that we can achieve in life. We give false generosity. I'm not talking about real, heartfelt generosity here. But I'm saying, why are there people in the world who have their names on big buildings at college campuses who are on the third or fourth wife and their own kids don't want to talk to them and none of the people that they work with even want to have lunch with them because generosity isn't real? They don't actually have generosity for people. They just pay out large sums to try to cover the things they don't want to change. Or we turn to penitence. This is what the Catholic Church was teaching in Luther's day. Do seven Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and go give some alms and work a week at the church and do this and do that. And by the time you're done, you know, that's all it takes to please God. And that has never been what it took to please God. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a contrite heart. And so the time has come not for us to cover falsely, but to exchange coverings with God. There's a moment in your repentance when you realize, I need the other covering. I need the better sacrifice. I need the true high priest. And Paul writes it in Colossians 3.3, He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I want you to look closely at the words because we're ending on these today. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, when you reenact that baptism scenario and you go under those waters and you pass into that promised land with the Holy Spirit in your heart and Jesus Christ is your Lord and God is your Father, you've died to yourself. You've peeled off the old man, the old covering and all the things you used to say to try to convince yourself you didn't really need to repent is gone. And instead, you're clothed with Christ and you get hidden again. God doesn't allow you to just be continually borne down by the weight of your repentance where the rest of your life, every moment, it's like, no, am I going to ever get better than this? No, he covers you with Christ so that you can live a lifetime season of repentance and still, as the Bible authors say, have great joy. him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Isn't that the God that you want covering you? And so in Colossians chapter 3, when Paul says you died, he also says this in verse 1 and 2, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. And in verse 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 12. He says, be renewed by, the, by, by your mind being transformed. Have this mind change of repentance in which we come before God and we say, I'm done fighting it with merely human strength. 
This time I'm going to ask you to cover me. Today, our church would love to pray with you. We're a praying church. And our elders are at the back of these two aisles right here when we sing this next song if you want to pray with them. And the ministers are available to talk throughout the week if you want to pray with us. Over the next couple weeks, we'll talk about some more ways that we can enter into repentance together as a community. But for today, hear this. If this is what the Spirit is saying to your heart, don't wait until the axe cuts down the tree. Receive God's grace. Step into it. Why wouldn't you? And so let's stand and sing this song together. And if you want to pray, our shepherds are here for you.